as we have um, focused our attention as a community on the love of God, we're, we've um, kind of rallied around the idea of a church of people who want to learn to love like Jesus loved. And this isn't just kind of in our brains, we understand Jesus' love, and it's not just in our hearts where we feel that, it's kind of a combination of both of those things. And if we think that the love of Jesus will flow right through us without any, uh, out any help, we're kind of sadly mistaken, because it's a very difficult thing as humans to learn what it is to love like Jesus did. And so we gather together in, on Sunday mornings to come together and worship, and to turn our attention to God, the God who is the uh, definition of love. And we uh, gather in home groups in order to be in tighter, tighter community with people who may, we may not uh, necessarily be like or who we may not necessarily choose to, to be around on our own, but because they're in our family of faith, we gather together and learn together and our sharp edges rub up against each other where we get to practice forgiveness and grace and all the things which form our hearts, this long process of love. And we also have service opportunities where we go out and serve the community and express Jesus' love together in our hands uh, and our feet. And so, uh, yeah, if you feel like, well, I know I come on Sunday mornings and I hear about meal trains and uh, all sorts of expressions of love that are happening kind of behind the curtain of Sunday mornings, uh, this is a great chance for you to come and learn about what it is to, to get plugged into the community here. And so you're, you're, you're most welcome. It's a kid-friendly space, this lunch. It's a free lunch. You can bring your kids. Um, if, uh, if you don't know where to go after the service, if that's kind of making you feel a little disoriented or anxious, down the administration hallway, um, that one over there, it, the lunch will be in the study, which is on past the washrooms on the left. You'll get your food uh, in the room just before that. And if you still feel disoriented, Jacob, why don't you stand up? Um, wave to everyone. He's got a lanyard on. Jacob will be standing back there in the hallway giving you directions. So if you really feel like lost, find Jacob and he'll, <laughs> he'll direct you. Well, um, and part of this whole thing, what you'll discover if you, if you come to the lunch today, is that learning to love like Jesus, uh, sometimes that just simply means studying him. Because it's one thing to be formed in our hearts, it's one thing to be in community, and it's super essential uh, in the formation of love, but we can get our minds so fixed on other kinds of lesser loves that unless we focus and learn and study Jesus, study the Gospels, and uh, learn what, who he was, sometimes we can get disoriented and off track. And so part of this whole deal as a church, and the opportunities crop up from time and time again, uh, opportunities where we get to just get down together and study Jesus. And one of these is coming up not um, next Saturday, but the, the Saturday after that on October 5th at St. Patrick's High School. We're teaming up forces with Transformation Church and the Salvation Army, and a New Testament professor, Dr. David Smith, will be in all that day uh, for a seminar. You don't have to register. You can just show up. Their uh, lunches, bring your own lunch, or uh, there'll be some time for you to go out in the middle of the day to grab a sandwich uh, at a store. Uh, but this is going to be a great, you know, 9 to 4.30 kind of day uh, where people from all three churches will gather to hear him talk about Jesus and understanding the Bible. So this is for you if you want to know more about Jesus, if you want to know more about who he was, or if you just need a re-kick start in studying the Bible. This, is, this will be a great opportunity to come out. And the next morning, if you missed the 
uh, announcement as well. The next morning, October 6th, we'll be back at St. Patrick's High School, not here in the church, doing a shared worship service in which Dave Smith, Dr. Smith, will be preaching uh, for that service. So that's going to be super fun. We're providing the coffee, just in case you're worried about that. Um, <laughs> and um, it'll be a great time. So anyway, some great stuff coming up, and uh, we would love to invite you to get engaged. Uh, today, back, uh, here we are back once again on Sunday morning. We are going to continue talking about love. We've been talking about love for the past couple of weeks, uh, spending a season here aligning a little bit more closely to our vision, which is to be people who spread Jesus' selfless love across the face of the earth. And so for a long season here, we're going to spend some time focusing on love. What is this love? How is it different than the love which we know in the world around us? And uh, we're going to be doing this in just a bunch of little mini-series. So after this, after these four sermons, we're in sermon three of four in the first mini-series, we're going we're to move on to uh, the book of Philippians and go through that verse by verse and talk specifically more about relationships and how this love that we have in Jesus' love should impact our relationships. And it's going to get pretty practical, like friendships, family, uh, co-workers, I intend that to be a little more practical, like how are we going to express this in our lives? And that will be um, finishing out the fall. And then we're going to talk in the new year about marriages and parents and being a parent and being parented and how this love matters there. And uh, then specifically after that in the Christian community, how do we love one another like Jesus did? So you can see a theme being woven throughout the year as we focus and hopefully have a little more of a vision of this selfless love that Jesus offers us and what that means in our schools, in our friendships, in every sphere of relationship that we can think about. Um, and we're, we're doing this partly because love is such a used word. It's such a, an overused word. Our culture thinks of something very specific about love. You know, it's, it's about being um, seen. It's about being uh, thought of as worthy. It's about being um, thought of as someone who is um, attractive and someone who can, you know, you can, you can find other people that will finally complete us. And all of that kind of thing, like, of course, like, those are great things. And the love of God enters into those places. But our world's way of doing love is filled with all sorts of traps, all sorts of misdirections. And um, we have to really do some hard work. And so what we're really doing at the beginning here of this uh, season of love is we're rescuing the word love. We need to rescue it from the ways our world use it, uses it and the, way, the powerful ways that we get entranced on what love is and put it back into the Christian framework. And so as we do so, we're kind of coming up with these big ideas, focusing in on Jesus' love, that selfless love, this Jesus-like love, is rid of, purified of self-preservation and self-exalting, of thinking of ourselves as someone that's really... Uh, uh, higher than other people. Or it's rid of self-righteousness, that sense that we, um, we are the ones who are walking around without anything to blame things upon. And so as we get into the Christian worldview, in the Christian sense, love is about cross-bearing, about seeking low positions around us and on forgiveness. Th these are the main ideas which come in and a purified Christian love uh, has these qualities to them. 
Last week, we talked about this one verse which kind of helps us get from the one side to the other, that no one has experienced a greater love than this, someone putting his life on the line for a friend. And you can see that this is not about the search for fulfillment, the search for completion. This isn't about even romantic feelings. There's none of that. It's about friendship. And so if we want to talk about what great love is, what the good, powerful aspects of love are, it has nothing really to do with what we think. And so Jesus comes along and talks about denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following him. And if we can maybe have that as an initial block on which we're building our idea of Christian love. The second one, the second verse is this. It comes in Acts 20. It comes from Paul, who spent a long ministry serving Jesus and trying to be like him in the world. And he says to, as he's uh, leaving Ephesus, he's leaving a bunch of believers who he knows he'll never see again. He says, everything I did, I did to help the weak. Remembering that the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And here, here once again, we have a, a quote from Jesus. Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And this word blessed, we can talk maybe about happiness in this framework of ideas. Um, what's really the thing that makes us the most happy in the world? What is it that makes us the most fulfilled and the most peaceful and the sense that everything is right in our world? It's not receiving. It's not, it has nothing to do with receiving anything. Adoration, praises, encouragement. It has nothing to do with receiving. It has everything to do with giving. We are most happy as humans when we sense that our lifeblood has been poured out and someone else is living because of it. That's when we're most fulfilled. This is what Jesus is trying to rescue us out of this self-centered human love into this sense of if you want that long-lasting, deep happiness and blessedness, it's going to become in giving. And this is going to take a massive change of mind and heart from what we think of and know, from changing our minds and hearts to choosing low positions, to humbling ourselves, to taking the postures of servants and have-nots. And only then will we find the satisfaction in life that we're really after. Sorry, I'm sniffly today. You're going to have to deal with that. I'm really sorry. I've been dealing with this for a week. Here it is still. So um, don't shake my hand this morning. I'll go last here. <laughs> um, so the low positions of life. I'm not sure if anyone here is a fan of Downton Abbey. We Downton Abbey fans have more to rejoice about these, this day and age with the movie that's just out, where the king and queen come to visit Downton Abbey. And um, I binged on this show a while back. Um, and like any show on Netflix or anything or like this, you know, there is, I'm not telling you to go out and watch the show because it does have some garbage in it. But uh, it's binge-worthy for sure. Um, and it really is an interesting picture of the haves and have-nots of this world, isn't it? I mean, who in, in this show, if we watch this, if you don't know this show, it's about uh, the early 20th century, an arist aristocratic family who uh, is kind of dealing with all of the events of the early 20th century. And you have the uh, group of people here in the middle who are the... Uh, those who are served hand and foot, and then you have their whole um, army of servants who live down beneath the, you know, the, the mansion that they live in. And uh, all, all sorts of drama ensues. Um, but it's interesting. It's an interesting kind of juxtaposition between uh, 
two kinds of people. And who do we see ourselves as as we watch this show? Do we hope that someday we are going to be weighted on hand and foot like the aristocracy? Do we want to be people who are greeted with respect as we walk down the corridors of our life? Do we want to be people who have flowing robes and pearls and tuxedos? Or, or do we see ourselves in the position of the servants, those who are live in the basement and have one little single cell that they live in and their whole purpose in life is to make sure this other group of people are served hand and foot and they even you know change their clothes in this day and age it's an interesting kind of thing to you know some of these uh, aristocratic people don't know how to even change their clothes and so uh, anyway I mean the, 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 the servants in this still get tuxedos so I'm not sure how, how great of, a, of an, an image of serving it is. But there we have it. Who do we see ourselves as in this picture? And who do we want to be? Um, and as you can imagine, if we think of ourselves as the aristocracy who are being weighed on hand and foot, or if we see ourselves as servants whose job it is to exalt and serve others, that changes so much in every relationship that we're in, doesn't it? Think about that in terms of your friendships, in terms of your intimate relationships, in terms of your family. Who do you see yourself as in those contexts? Uh, and that will, that will hit so much strife uh, gets avoided if we can just think of ourselves as servants rather than those who need to be served. And by the way, as I dive into this today, part of my plan is to get real at the very end. I'm going to give some kind of practical examples of what love in a self-humbling way looks like. Uh, but the way I'm going to get there is through a few kind of bigger stories. I'm going to do a bit of a sweep across Jesus' teaching here. Um, so stick with me and we'll get to some real practical nuggets at the end. But as we think about this kind of love which Jesus is calling us, the best place for us to figure out what he has in store to teach us is in the middle part of his ministry after he's already gained and, uh, and gathered a big crowd around him after he said so many kind of hard and interesting things. Uh, there's a middle part of his ministry where he begins talking about love. Um, but this early part, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us this early part of his ministry where he was going around the region of Galilee, which was his hometown, uh, doing kind of the, all the wrong things on the Sabbath, the holy day of the week. He was healing people, uh, calling followers, telling parables, sailing back and forth across the lake, showing that he was able to control weather patterns. Um, John paints a bit of a different picture for us of Jesus coming back and forth um, to Jerusalem and uh, to Galilee. Uh, but uh, in this time, Jesus is saying things like, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And he's saying, like, you, can, you can't love two masters. You gotta, you're going to love one and hate the other. You've got to have one master who is God. Or John, in his gospel, gives us this amazing, memorable idea that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And by the way, the verse doesn't say God so hated the world that he killed his son. That's Pandora's box. I'm not going to open that this morning. But just think about that, the difference. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, so it's in this, this part of his early ministry that we get this picture of Jesus already talking about love. Love is the centerpiece of what he has to communicate to his followers. 
But then we get this awesome convergence between all four Gospels. They all sort of say there's this middle part of the ministry. And it begins with the feeding of the 5,000. All four, all four Gospels have this. And um, it's um, this place where he begins saying harder things than, uh, than he's told his followers before. Like, love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he puts this together as the memorable heartbeat of what he's about. And this other interesting one John gives us, if God were your father, you would love me. That's a really interesting one, eh? You will love me if you really worship the true living God. You will love Jesus. So um, we have this love woven through here, and all of this um, comes up into this, these teachings which we get in the middle part of this ministry. And he begins to talk to his followers about sacrifice and giving himself away. And that's gonna be the only way to real life. I'm gonna to go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna get killed, I'm gonna get rejected, and then I'm gonna come back to life, raised back into life on the third day. And this pattern of selflessness being the only way to true life. And he's seeing big things like, this is the only way this world is gonna change. This is the only way that the Father is gonna undo the evils of this world. It's this pattern which we all have to learn. And because his disciples started hearing Jesus talking so big, with such, such big vision, they begin kind of asking themselves the great question, the wonderful question, well, who then is the greatest? And this gets us into the idea of how love and self-exaltation don't work. Who then is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? Matthew has this um, picture of the disciples coming up to Jesus and just cornering him. All right, if all this is true, tell us who's the greatest. Uh, Mark and Luke have this really interesting other idea um, that that they were kind of talking about this and arguing about this on the road, but Jesus wasn't overhearing it, but he knew they were talking about something. And so these guys are whispering, who's the, who's the greatest? And Jesus kind of knows their heart and says, all right, let me tell you about this. But it's the right question. It's the exact right question, except for they still had the wrong framework in mind. Who is going to be the highest and most uh, most revered, and who's going to get the most privilege because we're part of your kingdom. That's kind of what they were asking. But Jesus realizes this is, uh, this is going to help him teach exactly what his vision of love is about. Um, and as we do so, as, we, as Jesus answers this question, it's like this great network of ideas if you read the Gospels, across the Gospels. Who then the great, is the greatest? And he answers this in so many different ways, uh, many times because he needs to over and over again remind them what love is really about. And he starts talking about children being great. And the greatest in the kingdom is the one who's the greatest servant. And he has these, he realizes just how hard this is to get through human imagination. And so he has these powerful kinds of things he does, like pulls a young child into the mix of the teaching and says, look, this is the greatest. Or he, at the, at the last, his very last meal, think about this, his last meal ever on earth, what is he doing? Is he being served? No, he's taking off his outer cloak and washing feet, saying these are the kind of things he's trying to get through their mind about what love is. Uh, he points to the Pharisees and say they like to be honored, you know, in their, in their uh, marketplaces. They like to be seen and they like to kind of be revered. But Jesus says, don't look over here. Look over at this lowly widow who's given two little pennies. She's the greatest. Humble yourselves, he'll say. So, 
his, his answer to this question fans out into the expanse of his teaching here. Um, and I'm inviting us to see his answer to this question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, as his essential answer to what is love? What is love like? So here, let's, let's kind of unpack this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child whom he placed among them. Powerful kind of image. They're trying to imagine who's going to be Jesus' replacement. Who's going to be like, okay, Jesus, you say you're going to go get killed. Well, who's going to replace you then? Or um, Jesus, you know, when you get resurrected and this whole thing gets set up, who's going to be the one that's going to sit at your right hand and left hand and help rule this thing? And he pulls this child in front of them. I didn't want to embarrass a kid today, but wouldn't that be interesting? There's so many kids that kind of walk around grassroots. I, I was thinking the other day about one comment. Someone once said that grassroots, you go to church and it's like mountains of kids on mountains of kids, which is a fun and beautiful thing, but sometimes it can get chaotic. And we sometimes maybe get rubbed the wrong way because they're sort of inconvenient or, or whatnot. But Jesus is saying, don't ignore these little ones. They are a window into who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing here that we notice is that Jesus is saying you got to change something. He's not just saying become like a child. Sometimes we forget these little phrases in the scriptures. Unless you change and become a little child. Like this is a change. This is a, we have to rethread our minds significantly in order to understand the kingdom. Um, unless you become like a child, yes, but first you've got to change. You know, the love that Jesus is asking from us is not going to come naturally. It's just not natural, selfless love. We've got to change. Um, and the reality about humans is we're self-oriented, climbing ladders. Um, just that's our natural sense. Uh, I went to a, a university called Augustana, and uh, at Augustana, the mascot is a, a Viking, Augustana Vikings. And at homecoming every year, they, they crown the Viking. Uh, get it? You know, okay, there's a Viking and a Viking. And then that's your, you know, your, uh, your fourth year, the, those people get uh, voted to Viking, Viking. And um, then... Uh, your, your first year, second year, third year, you're like the, the, there's like this prince, the, the, this, you get provided the vi-prince and the vi-jester, I don't know. There's this court of royalty that they, you know, for, for uh, just one day, you get to be the, the most revered person on campus. And my freshman year, I was voted the freshman vi-prince. <laughs> yeah, thank you, yeah, come on, come on, come on. And I thought that was just great, you know, so... You know, they, they don't tell you who wins beforehand, but you're just standing there. And if you're the last freshman, last first year to go, you're, you won. And, you know, I, don't get, I didn't get a crown or anything that year. But uh, I walked down and I sat, you know, ne next on the right hand of the king. And I thought that was just great. Um, you know, 2,000 people in my, in my university. And I was the Viprince. Well, guess what? I was also the second year Viprince. <laughs> And the third year, I was the third year. So guess what I thought was going to happen fourth year? What was inevitable? <laughs> and so um, I was ready for it, you know. I was like, 
I was like, they, they give you a crown as the Viking, and I was like a serious Christian at that point. I was like going to take the crown and go put it at the cross and be like all rebellious. <laughs> I was like ready for this, you know. And so I was the second to last fourth year and just thought it was inevitable. And they called me out next, and John Agard was the Viking. <laughs> Worst day of my life. Um, <laughs> Eve, Eve does not let me live this down. It's just, but like, like what was my motive in all of that? Like, what was I loving about even the potential to be a Christian Viking? You know, like, what was my motive? Was like, you know, was I like being admired? You know, was I achieving my goals? Was I gonna like, you know, get more out of my senior year because of it? And it was a really important kind of stupid but humbling moment of my life. And um, to make it all the more, you know, like my, my parents had, that was their alma mater and my sister, and my grandpa. So like we were a family line in this university and none of them were even a vibrance. So I was like going to, you know, bring this home for my family. <laughs> what about this change? You know, like this, this change in our life, like becoming a child. Unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And oftentimes we take this to mean the purity of our hearts. Like the, um, we become pure, we, we become motiveless, but, uh, you know, there's all sorts of teachings in the scriptures about not being childish. You know, like 1 Corinthians 13, uh, I was, once was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I grew up, I became a, an adult. Or Jesus said, you were like, this generation is like children playing their flute and wanting to just pressure us and me and my cousin John into doing whatever you wanted. He's like, not talking about being childish, but becoming like children. And, and, and he'll go on here to say that, that those who welcome the little children also welcome me. And we see that he's not necessarily angling at the idea of becoming childish or even pure of heart. But he's actually talking a little bit more about a social contract, like status. Whoever takes a humble place Becoming like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. And I think it means far more of this. Be willing to be treated like a child. See how that's a bit different than the purity of heart? Like what is a child treated like? A nuisance? A disruption? As know-nothings? Irrelevant? Useless? If you want to be first, actually, if you want to even enter my kingdom, you're going to be willing to be treated like a child. And your life will be satisfied. Very different than how we run this world, isn't it? Um, but as we go, as we unpack this a little bit, because this is one little nugget in, in, in a bigger swath of Jesus' teachings. Um, so, yes, being willing to be treated like a child, but he also sometimes will, will talk like this. Um, be willing to be treated like a servant of all. You know, like when I, I told the story about Jesus um, washing his disciples' feet his last meal, he goes and he washes them. He says, I've done something for you that you must now mimic. Um, this, is, this is what it is to be in my kingdom, to be a servant of all. And he says this like five or six times in, in his ministry, be willing to be a servant of all if you want to be first in my kingdom. Um, like, again, when he, when he says, don't look at the, those Pharisees liking to be, to be uh, seen and respected in the marketplace, but he'll say this, be a servant of all. The greatest will be your servant. 
Or he said once in a different part, you know, you like to be called instructor or teacher or rabbi or, or given honor, but rather, don't do that, but be a servant of all. So being willing, um, the greatest among you will be your servant. Be willing to be treated like a child. Be willing to treat, be treated like a servant. And there's so much teaching there. I'm just not unpacking it for us today. You can go read the Gospels on your own. And then he also says sometimes, be willing to be the last. The first is the last in my kingdom. And these all ideas cluster together to give us this vision that in his kingdom, there is no human, no person who is given over to thinking that they're more important than other people. In fact, they've constantly and regularly put themselves in positions to be last and least in serving. And to, um, you know, and the funny thing about this, I think, as humans, I mean, we can look at this and go, oh my gosh, like, actually there's something there that's really straightforward. Like, it's very clear. But don't we forget this part of his teaching quite a bit? Don't we forget in our everyday lives how this works? And, and as humans, we could probably, when it comes to self-exaltation, someone who thinks of themselves as too big or too important, like we all oftentimes remember the worst in others, but the best in ourselves. We, like, we remember our best moments, and then we interpret all of our worst moments based upon who we know we are. But then we oftentimes look at other people and interpret them through their worst moments and the times that they were most childish. And uh, comedy... If you, if you think about it, most of comedy in this world, the people that we like to laugh at the most are characters who think too highly of themselves. Like The Office, Michael Scott. You know, if you, you know like, he thinks he's, he, he thinks he's, there's self-exaltation going on there. That's what makes that character so funny. Or there's this, um, uh, there's this, again, I'm not endorsing any of this, but there's this, uh, there's this new Netflix movie out um, with Zach, Gal- uh, Zach Galifianakis between the two ferns, the movie, behind the two ferns. And it's hilarious because he takes himself too seriously. He's, he's, so we know that we look around us and we see people taking themselves too seriously and it's, it's like comedy, it's something that we laugh at. But we forget sometimes how oftentimes we do that and we, we fall into these, these categories. But Jesus is saying that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to be the greatest, there's gonna be none of this. None of this self-exaltation, none of this thinking too much of yourself. Um, And to illustrate this, Jesus tells about a few parables. Um, But here's one in Luke that we might forget, and I'm just going to narrate it for us today. So uh, one day Jesus was uh, eating at a Pharisee's household. It was a dinner party. It was on the Sabbath. And when he was eating, he noticed in this big grouping of people in the dining room that there was a man with dropsy. And I'm not sure if you know what dropsy is, but it's the swelling of any human body part because of the excess water that, um, that, that builds up. They called it, um, well, Luke calls it an abnormal um, swelling of the body. And so he sees this person, and the Pharisees and the other important people are just kind of eating, and he's going to take this as a moment. And if you notice, Jesus is never really nice at dinner parties. I don't know if you've noticed that. He goes to dinner parties, and he makes, uh, he makes a stink about whatever he wants to. So he's at this dinner party, and he's noticing this whole situation unfold, and he knows that if he goes and touches this man and heals him immediately, with the response he'll get from the leaders is that Jesus uh, was a godless man who, who healed on the Sabbath because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus says, he brings this man forward, and he says, I'm going to ask all of you, and now he's making the room uncomfortable, I'm going to ask all of you, if I heal this man on the Sabbath, um, how will you feel about that? And these Pharisees, they just, they're smart enough, but they say nothing. They know that, this, that, that Jesus is weaving a bit of a trap for them. And he says, you guys, if you have 
an oxen that falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, once you go pull it out, or if you have another animal which is uh, in, in danger, won't you go save it on the Sabbath? Like, who's more worthy, that animal or this human being here? He's opening up what love is about. What, what is love about? And so he walks over to this, this man defying these leaders, and he touches this man and heals him. He's Im- immediately healed. And he, he says he healed him and sent him on his way. I love that little just tidbit in there. He, he heals him and sends him on his way because if you get healed from dropsy or whatever, it's like you're not sticking around at the party just to sort of go on as usual. Like you're going to go home and you're going to be happy and tell all your relatives. So he gets sent away and the party goes on because the Pharisees say nothing but secretly they're just seething at Jesus inside because they think he's out of, out of order. And so because Jesus knew that he wasn't done making people uncomfortable yet, he noticed how people are seated at this table. You got the most important person in the room and then the next important person and the next. And all they're doing is trying to gain social favor and be the most respected person in the community, all the while missing the whole point of God's love for humanity. So he's like, all right, I'm going to tell you a parable. He stands up again and maybe this is the, this is the leader here of the household and his, his son, maybe he's trying to get Jesus to be silent. Shut this guy up, dad. And, he's, and Jesus says, it's like this. If you go to a wedding, if you go to a wedding, make sure not to go sit at the head table without being invited. Because that's what you guys will do. You'll want to be at the seats of honor. But if you're at a wedding, go sit on the back floor, the last seat. Because what might happen is someone more important might come and this, the, the leader of the wedding might remove you and everyone will be embarrassed. But if you sit at the back, what might happen is the, the wedding guest might go, oh, that guy's important enough. Let's take him up and put him in the middle of the seat. Okay, this is a parable. Looks at it as a parable. And the point of it is, is Jesus' punchline at the end, the great punchline. Those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. That's his ethic. That's the way Jesus wants to build his kingdom. People who are willing to humble themselves. But we don't like humiliation, do we? Being humble doesn't feel good. We don't like humiliation in any bit. But here's the thing. Here's what I've found. If we don't humble ourselves, if we aren't people who actively humble ourselves, life will humiliate us for us. That, have you experienced that? Life will bring something along and humiliate you for you. Um, and the kingdom can't be full of people who walk around so self-important that at every little turn, they're just being humbled and humiliated. Be willing to be treated like a child. Be willing to be treated like a servant. Be willing to be the least important. What is love like? It's like someone who in all of their relationships has mastered these things. Now, okay, we're all in process, right? Like none of us has arrived at this. None of us does this perfectly, and that's part of the deal. We're in this process of being humiliated and coming to, to learn these uh, values of Jesus. But here's the thing. We have to be not just people who are being washed away in the tides of our culture, which wants honor, to honor others, but we have to be firmly planted in this stream of baptism, which allows us to be shaped and transformed and purified. And I guess what I'm asking of us is, are we resisting 
our honor culture? And are we doing these things? That's, that's what I'm asking here. Are we denying ourselves, humbling ourselves, being ready to be treated like a child? Because in this way, it's the kingdom of God is marked by this kind of love. So getting to some sort of practical points before we move on. And by, by the way, this, these four sermons, there will be one next week on forgiveness and how that marks out a person who's captured the heart of the love of, of God. Um, I'm not meaning to get too practical. I'm meaning more to give us, to, for the whole year, orienting our vision. Let's rescue the love out of what we think it is and put it back in context into what real love is about in the kingdom of God. So I'm going to get real practical uh, come October in relationships. How does this all play out in relationships? But because I couldn't help myself, I'm going to give you some ideas of how this works out. And the real, the real crux of it all and I would invite you to continue journaling about this because journaling is the best way for these things to get formed. How can I humble myself today? That's the question. How can I humble myself today? What, what might that look like? What are the seats of honor in our culture? How can I be the last and the least? How do I react when I'm treated like a child in a servant? Can I get a show of hands of who likes to be treated like a child in a servant? I see one child raising their hands. It's not fun, is it? No one wants to be treated like a child. But that's what Jesus is asking of us, is to be okay when that happens. When someone, you know, raise of hands, who here likes to be someone else's doormat? We love it, right? It's just like, no. can we come to terms and be okay with that? Because when we do, this is a signal that the love of God, which is Christ, is being formed in us. So th these are the questions, and I have some ideas here. Um, what are the seats of honor in our society? You think of seats of honor? I mean, leadership is clear, a clear one if you're a leader. And Jesus isn't saying, like, if you're a leader, you're not coming to the kingdom of God. Um, he's saying those who pursue positions of leadership for the wrong reasons probably are in danger. So, like, what are the wrong reasons to pursue leadership? Money, power, prestige, I read this article, this interesting article this week about uh, people being polled, like 2,000 managers of different organizations being polled about why managers go into leadership positions. And the biggest one was money because there's more money there. Doesn't make sense? Why would you? And, and it's like 10% is because they want to lead people. <laughs> you know, so you can see why many, of the, many people have problems with their leaders because they're not really in it to lead people. They're in it for money. Um, seeking positions of honor in our society power, prestige, for money. Uh, yeah, like as Christians, we don't seek positions of leadership. We just don't go after them with all of our strategies. We just wait for God to bestow them upon us. And when it's time, we take the courage, courageous step to, to interest them. And especially when, like, when you come into a new situation, a new workplace situation, or you move to a new place, if you come to a new place, you gotta just be okay not being a leader for a while. I mean, if, when, you know, when, when someone comes in and they say, Keith, put me to leadership right away because I'm a, I've got leadership capability, I'm like, danger, danger, Will Robinson. You know, like, um, you know, like be okay serving for a while and then be okay when it's time to be a leader. So seats of honor in our society, leadership is a clear one for me. But how about, how about this? I think there's a seat of honor in our culture that, feels like the person who has their life together, put together fine, 
it has no problems, they've got it all worked out, and they're successful. We honor those kinds of people, don't we? We listen to them. We listen to, um, uh, to their ideas, to their, their teaching, just because it looks like they've got it all together. But here's the thing. Um, successful, strong, composed people, if that's a seat of honor, how do we not take it? How do we avoid trying to put ourselves in those situations? I think that one of the best ways is confession. Like, you know, you walk around with happy, smiley people walking around that have no problems. Like, that's not, that's, that's like being, like, want to be honored in the marketplaces with flowing robes. But what about the widow? What about the person whose life isn't together? Like, can we actually be honest with one another about our weaknesses and what we've got messed up in our life? Um, and confession is a great way. Like telling people um, that you don't have it all together is a beautiful way of taking a low position. And, um, and get specific about this. You know, I'm going to talk about forgiveness next week and how confession fits in. And there are times to confess to other people our deep, dark, dark stuff. I'm not necessarily talking about that. There's like kind of ground rules for confession. Um, but can you like, can you talk about kind of the mid-level stuff like, I'm jealous of that person because of what they have. I'm struggling with envy. I'm struggling with wanting to take too much control. Can you portray yourself as someone who doesn't have it all together? And let me, let me tell you, that is a wonderful example, I think, in our culture of someone who's not taking a seat of honor. And when we do, when we portray ourselves as all put together, I think we're trying to take that seat, that first seat. And again, Jesus isn't saying that um, you're not going to get some sort of public praise in your life. It's just that that follows when you've taken the least seat and someone says, come forward, show us a little bit more of your ideas. Um, or taking interest in others. You know, like I think taking interest in others is a really good idea in relationships. <laughs> if you walk around and oh, you don't really care about what anyone else is doing but you and you're, you're the talking head about your life, let, let, me, let me tell you, you're now in a seat of honor. You've put yourself in a seat of honor. Like, you don't have to go bash yourself, but you can really be interested in what other people are doing in their life. And when you take in your relationships a chance to ask why other people are doing what they're doing or ask them for advice or help, like, uh, it's a great way, a great way um, to humble ourselves. How do we continue to humble ourselves? Don't seek positions of leadership. Um, don't bring yourself off in this world as successful, composed. Um, don't just have everyone take an interest in you. That's how we can humble ourselves. Um, oh, I got so many good ideas here. Um, last and the least. <laughs> last and the least. Inside joke there, apparently. Um, the last and the least. Uh, okay, so this is about lines. Let's get practical with this. Um, if you're in the grassroots youth group and you're always the first to get the snack, <laughs> don't be. Go last. Go last and never let everyone else have the snack first. But, you know, this, this can get really practical. Like, I was going through Superstore the other day, pushing my, my cart, and, um, and there were so many people, you know? Like, and I was, like, had this intuition to just drive around them and be the American that I am, and, you know? Like, <laughs> by the way, like, Canadians don't deal as harshly I'm with, as this with Americans. You guys have, like, politeness in, encapsulated in your culture some way in the ways that Americans don't. Um, <clears throat> But how can you be the last and the least? There are dozens of opportunities to let someone else go in front of you. 
How can you humble yourselves? Um, what kind of things can you do here at church to help um, to be in, in servant positions? Now, you know, on Sunday mornings, we come and we do this thing, and it, ha- it happens because there are our servant leaders uh, in this community. It happens because there are people making coffee and cleaning the, the kitchen and um, uh, actually being with the kids on, uh, uh, if you want to be um, with you know, helping minister to the kids and being ministered to by the kids. Every six weeks, we have assistants who don't have to prepare anything. They're just in there sort of helping do crowd control in the room. And you get plan to protect. You're here with us for six months. We get your background checked. You go through plan to protect training. And it's a beautiful way um, to be a servant in the community. There's so many opportunities. And we're not just trying to build up our little church kingdom here, um, but we're giving you a weekly opportunity to be a servant. And... Uh, if you don't know about that then, and how to do that, come to the lunch today or sign up at the booth. Say, I want to be a, I want to be, I want to humble myself, Keith. Let me know, I'll call you. Um, there's so many opportunities in this life. And again, I'm going to unpack this a little more come October about what this all means for relationships. But we have to keep our mind around the, the, the heartbeat of the question, how am I humbling myself? And you know, Jesus says in response, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And he says, Therefore, whoever takes a humble place, becoming like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. See, this is the heartbeat of his answer. Who is the greatest? What does great love look like? And this is the picture he paints for us. And really, ultimately, at the end of the day, it means no self-exalting. And our relationships will work out as they need to. So, there's so much here. Uh, I'll continue on next week, finish off for us this first series when we think about forgiveness and self-righteousness and how those things are, are out of our, our love, purified out of love. Uh, in the meantime here, we have Jesus' invitation to us. Every time we get together, because this takes just such a change of imagination, um, we bring out this bread as he did at the Last Supper And we bring out this juice which symbolizes his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And that the happiest he's ever been is to know that his cross and his suffering wasn't for nothing. But that it was actually giving life to the world around him. Uh, And this is the heartbeat of the, the DNA of his answer and who he is and what he's about. And so we do this as a practice. One of the things that he uh, had instituted to teach us to get to get that change of mind going in our heart. And as we do so, we, um, take a piece of bread, we dip it in the juice, and whatever's on our heart, whatever God has given us today, we take it in and we swallow and we digest it. And we ask God once again that his love might become part of us at the very fabric of our being. So I invite you, friends, forward to bring whatever you have today in response to the living God to this table. The table is set, and everyone here is welcome.